0: Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast, the show where each week we speak to pharma company owners and industry leaders sharing their stories of personal and professional growth. This week, I'm joined by a recruiter, um, but not just any recruiter. We've got Ross Jackson on the show. Ross is literally the man who wrote the book on patient recruitment. Uh, I'm also joined by Adam Walker. Um, We kicked off a moment ago, kind of before we were on air, it seems that my my co-host and, and Ross already know each other, um, so I'm sure this will be an interesting one. Uh, but Ross, I've given you a short intro there. Um, who is the man that has literally
1: literally written the book on a patient recruitment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've been. Yes, I I did write the book. That was I took some time during lockdown to write a book on patient recruitment last year. It was a uh, quite fortuitous. Well, it, the lockdown wasn't but the, uh, the time available to write the book so yeah i've i've been working in lots of different things over the years i've spent 20, 20 plus years in digital marketing uh, a lot of that time working in healthcare and actually recruiting patients for private hospitals and things like that mm-hmm. uh, until i came across the clinical trials industry and uh, got a, a job through an agency a uh, freelance job um recruiting patients using digital advertising methods Mm -hmm. such as Google Uh, but then Facebook came into started to be a good advertising platform to use for things Um, my background had primarily been in lead generation so I thought oh this is a good combination lead generation patient recruitment so I started to do that Realised I was good at it and focused on that since then hence getting to where I am now and writing the book.
0: Incredible stuff. I mean, not all of us um, took the time to write a book during lockdown. Um, I certainly got quite active with exercise, but um, yeah, I guess that must have certainly kept you busy, Ross. Um, now, look, who is it that, that you're working for now? So heard there that you have been a freelancer for many years. Digital marketing was, was the background, but what's what's the, the company nowadays?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, earlier this year, I, I've been in touch with this company for a while. They're called Prime Global. There's a medical communications agency quite well-known. They deal with, you know, virtually all the top pharma companies. So they're, they're well-known in that sector. And they've been looking to build up their patient engagement and recruitment service. Mm-hmm. I've been in touch with them for a while. And we were just chatting earlier in the year. And it just seemed to make sense for me to work with them. Uh, to utilize their skills their expertise alongside mine to help well take me a bit further as a freelancer you can only get so far um but now with this extra organization uh it seems like a a perfect combination of things um yeah so i'm i'm now their vice president of patient recruitment services prime global
0: well i i must admit i had not come across prime global previously but i know Adam you certainly had come across Prime. Absolutely. So give us give us a bit of an insight on on those guys if if you can or between yourself and and Ross that'd be sort of useful to hear.
2: Well I mean you know for full disclosure as as I said before we joined um, the pod today Ross yeah I did an engagement with Prime um, about six six plus months ago something like that maybe nine months ago I think when I was when I was originally engaged with them and yeah, they're a fascinating company. They seem to be going places. They have some financial backing, significant, and, and they are market leaders in their space. And I wasn't aware of them until I engaged with them. But as you say, you know, they're going places. And clearly, having looked at your profile and, and familiarised myself with, with your profile, it, it makes sense. And it seems like a perfect fit, your skill set with uh, the requirement that they have to engage with patients. So, it seems like a match made in heaven just from the, from the outside, as I say, and, and, and knowing the way and the people that they have within their organization. And I was extremely impressed with with their personnel and, and the manner in which they've been going about their business.
1: Now, I'll certainly echo that. It's been great to have worked with them uh, just recently, this was, but I've known them for a while. But yeah, I mean, all the people there are great to work with. They're all very talented, uh, a lot of expertise. Um, like you say, they got some investment. This is not secret news. It's on their website, you know, earlier yeah. in the year. So they're looking to uh, expand it. I think they've been in the top 10 uh, healthcare companies for growth for the last few years. Um, so in the Sunday Times list, and there's a, an American list as well. So, so they're definitely going places, uh, it seems to be. Um, but yeah. It's a great place to be.
0: Fantastic stuff. And look, Ross, I guess, look, with the intro, we talked about the, the book and we'll perhaps get into that in a bit, bit more detail. Um, you mentioned that your background has has been digital marketing for a while um, and you kind of stumbled across the, the patient recruitment side of things and the link to Facebook. Um, but if we were to, to kind of go back before to all of that, how did you how did that come about you know what what led to that point where did you see that similarity where or where you know where did you spot the opportunity because yeah so much in in life it's it's a case of being in the right place at the right time um but you know on top of that i think a lot of the time you need to be aware that you're in the right right place at the right time so how how did you how did you spot that
1: uh well originally in, in the digital marketing i was um one of the I was quite early adopter for digital marketing, so I was actually promoting websites before Google existed, which is uh, quite bizarre. From 1998, I've been doing that, um, and I just started to build up things along, and that was quite that was quite fortunate that I was there. I just happened to be oh this would be a good thing to do, mm. um, and then through various clients I'd worked with and agencies I'd worked with, um, got to know about you know the healthcare space, and then. Well, the clinical trials one came out of the blue. I wasn't overly familiar with clinical trials in reality. I, I think I probably knew they existed, but I, I just thought it was something that somebody, somebody else did. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's quite quite a common theme for the industry that people come into it from other things. Um, and that's, that's how it worked. I just I, I did it through an agency and I thought, well, this is a great match for what I do and it's yeah. actually something nice i like doing things that are giving something back i like the idea that we're getting hopefully developing treatments for conditions mm-hmm. so i thought yeah. yeah and then i got another one and then another one and it just came on from there and i just thought this is this is an industry that i like working in um as well as prime global the actual industry itself seems to be populated by nice people like yourselves mm-hmm. um so it's um it's a good it's a good space to be and that's that, that's what I did I just thought right I'll take that opportunity I'll focus on it and it's worked worked to get me to where I am now well and you know what I'm, I'm, I
0: have to mirror that there's a lot of I think what do you call it nice certainly like night minded people in the industry you know everyone seems to have a common goal everyone works together everyone seems to network um, and it becomes almost a little bit incestuous i mean you know us three were talking just before we kicked off here about kind of who we know who we've met and it's a small world at, at times um the fact that you know we're all talking about guys that we know over in, in the states um you know you guys have, have worked at, at similar uh, companies so it's it is a fantastic industry um to work working so how has that developed for yourself now in terms of you know talk us about uh, i guess you know that we, we know your background now but talk us about how that that switch led to the book the facebook marketing um which is a, a whole perhaps yeah. other, almost a seminar on, on how that all works because i've tried to delve into that my, myself previously uh, but look, talk to us about where you found this this uh, niche for yourself and where where the book w- was born where did that come from
1: yeah, so I I'd worked at different levels in within the in, clinical trials in particular. So I've worked for directly for sponsors, I worked for CROs and I worked for research sites. And I thought, okay, this is an interesting model here. Like there's three layers going on. Um, I'll probably get on to something about what where I think it's heading in the future uh, at some point. But for the moment, that's that's what seems to be happening. And I thought, well, this is an interesting model to use. I looked at it and decided the sponsors seem to have all the money. CROs seem to have all the business uh, and the research sites are the ones at the bottom end who sort of I like dealing with the sites because uh, you can get things done quickly but they don't have the same resources so I was thinking well how can I how can I get more work from sponsors directly And um, that was what I was thinking a lot a lot of the time uh, the work I was doing was from CROs where the trial was in rescue uh, so they thought we need to get lots of patients now because we've deadlines two weeks away. How do we do it? Let's try Facebook ads. That's that's where that sort of came from originally. Uh, and then I had a bit of a reputation in the industry and other agencies knew I was doing it. So I'd be approached to come in at the last minute to try and get, we need 50 patients this week. Can you get them through your Facebook ad skills? So I thought, well, okay. Um, I'd tried lots of different methods of recruiting patients, but certainly certainly well, lots of digital advertising and then I'd also worked on projects where there was radio ads and press ads and other things so that but the digital outreach certainly seemed to work better than anything I knew of and Facebook in particular certainly from I'd say four or five years ago that was the case that that was Facebook was the one driving the most uh, participants into trials Mm -hmm. so I, I thought how can I do this I'll use my Facebook skills to approach different levels of business rather than just coming in at rescue stage let's try and do it um, from the start of a trial and that's what led to me writing the book I was I was been thinking about writing the book for years um, I eventually did now the problem with having written a book it's a printed book so I'd encourage everyone to buy it obviously but it's already slightly out of date because of things that have happened since it was published last year july last june last june um so i i I post blog posts with bits of updates and other things Um,
0: what's the um, name of the book out of interest ross just so we know for the for the audience because i'm I'm assuming it's available on amazon and, and places like that is it
1: it is. I mean, it's it's a it, you go to Amazon. It was an Amazon best-selling book when it was released. Um, it's probably quite a small niche market, but there you go. I don't I don't always say that. Don't play uh, yeah. So, too much. Don't play no, that too true. much. <laughs> but if yeah, if you look for it on Amazon, it's um, patient recruitment for clinical trials using Facebook ads by Ross Jackson. I've also uh, if you just patientrecruitmentbook.com goes to my web page about it.
2: There's some great reviews on there, Ross. I will yes. say that. Um, I had you. a little look and, and, and a number of people said, if, if ever you want to do this, this is the book you need to read. Um, and, and I don't know whether people actually knew whether they needed it. it as you said, it is quite niche, but nevertheless, you know, there, there are some, some, key, some key take-homes, which I think centre around cost per patient enrolled, cost per patient randomised through to studies. You know, there's an awful lot more effort that goes into radio and TV and uh, newspaper ads than there then they're clearly is in a targeted manner towards Facebook. Is that, is that really at the, at the crux of this? I,
1: I would say that's why Facebook works in reality, yes, because it's, um, you know, it, half the world's on Facebook almost, almost half the world's on Facebook. And if you're not personally on Facebook, you almost certainly know someone who is. So the beauty of the ads is that, if, and if you're not even on Facebook at the time, the ad is shown. Someone will see it and forward it to you so you can share ads. Yeah. Also, if someone sees an ad and they recognize this particular condition, okay, I don't have it myself, but somebody I know does, I'll let them know about this. Um, so again, it, it's a great way. It is a social um, platform. Uh, it's a very social way of sharing ads. If To see a TV advert, you have to be watching the TV. And then to remember it, you have to think, remember the web address or write it down or whatever. Facebook, it's there and you can copy it and share it so it's it's it it, even before I was doing uh predominantly clinical trials for for a couple of the other things I was doing I thought Facebook is working very well as an advertising medium
2: well I mean you you touched on the transferable skills and 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 automatically I'm thinking well I I'm I'm clearly uh, as you are embedded in the clinical trial world but I'm thinking where else and how else could this be adapted because you know there there are many other businesses and um enterprises out there that could could clearly do with that kind of focused advertising for a niche market whatever that might be based upon you know various criteria that you're able to drill into
1: yeah and that, that's that's another key factor it's one of the one of Facebook's killer apps really when it was first um, first came out of Facebook advertising was that the targeting you can do is, yeah. is brilliant because uh, they've got so much data they have so much data about their users uh, and there are so many users so you can target people by interest you can target people demographically age gender that sort of thing location obviously you can uh, but to the point where you could target people who are interested in watching particular tv programs if they have wow. that data with it mm. um, and facebook draws their data from pixels around and cookie type things that are around the internet also within its own system which there are more people using Facebook than anything else so within its own system it knows that there have been some updates recently Um, people might be familiar with the Apple iOS 14 update which has affected things but fundamentally the, the basic principles are the same and the basic results have been the same
0: what was, what was the huge deal about that, Ross? So look, it's, it's not the advertising and, and patient recruitment. It's, it's not my business, hence why I've not really dived into it personally because I've got enough to worry about running my own business than, you know, what's going on with Facebook. But I did notice, even on LinkedIn, a lot of people mentioning this and saying, is this going to be the end of, of Facebook ads? So what was the big hoo-ha about and what's you know what's your take on it? Clearly, it's... You don't think it's a huge gonna have a huge impact. But what was, I guess, where did the I guess maybe the anxiety come from from, from people that you know they heard this and often you know it's that yep. panic and herd mentality that can you know cripple something.
1: So yeah, talk talk to us about that. Okay, so the, the iOS 14 update basically was about privacy. It went so when people updated their Apple iPhone Apple system, it came up and said, it's asking them whether they want to be able to be tracked for advertising is basically the crux of it. Mm. Um, and the choice is yes or no. Um, which, and it's about third-party tracking, so it's on different websites. So yeah. like I mentioned, the Facebook pixel. You could put the Facebook pixel on a website about something, uh, let's say the BBC website. Well, you wouldn't put it on the BBC website, but it could be on the BBC website. Uh, so then Facebook knows you're interested in the BBC because you visited it and the pixels on there. What Apple was telling its users was, do you want this to be able to happen to you or not? And even before the update had happened, people realized, well, most people are going to say no, because they don't understand it, for a start. They don't know. Me personally, just to go off on a little ten- tangent on that, the. Um, it's better to actually have targeted advertising than not targeted advertising because you you still get the adverts. You're not, you're not saying I don't want to see adverts. You're saying I don't want to see adverts based on this particular type of tracking. So, I,
0: I agree, Ross. And I'm if anything, I'm fairly, firmly in that camp. That is partly that's how I do my shopping. Yes. If, if I know that I want to buy something, I'll tap it in. To, to Google, and I know that within a couple of days, it's going to filter through to you know my apps, my LinkedIn, my Instagram. I then it saves me a load of time. I'm quite a big, big fan about it. I don't know about um, clearly you are, Ross. I don't know about yourself,
2: <laughs> uh, Adam. What's well? I, I've had positive experiences. I I don't think I've had too many negative experiences around it. But what I'm noticing recently, and what I what I keep hearing in the public domain, is just that generally phones are picking up on on the language that we're using and the words that we're using. And there are artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms that are working upon listening to the dialogue that they hear from us directly. And and a classic example I have recently was when I've been talking to my sister recently about a new puppy. So she got a new puppy recently and, and blow me, couple of days later we, we'd had a number of telephone conversations and then suddenly all my amazon recommendations were how to how to train your new puppy and guess what I then did of course I bought her the book I sent yeah. it to her she then <laughs> replied back to me put it all over Facebook put it all over instagram and so it perpetuates that that is a classic example now I don't have a problem with that particularly either because it just took the thought out of it it made it straightforward but also I got i got uh, incentivized it was discounted so it wasn't you know an astronomical price i thought you know what one click bomb i'll send it to her and and sure enough it had it had the um the positive outcome that i'd hoped for so so you know that's that's a classic case in point now some people are pretty anti those kind of uh, approaches but but it tends. It seems to be the way that the world is is translating itself now.
1: Yes, it, it definitely is. It's already it's already there. There's this yeah. machine learning and artificial intelligence for all that sort of things. There, <clears throat> whether it specifically is listening to you is an argument for a million Reddit forums but it's uh, you know there's lots of people are saying whether it's listening to you or it may well be that you've actually searched for something and just forgotten and remembered the conversation that's that's a different issue but I can
2: categorically tell you I've not searched for anything on puppies I've got three dogs myself so I don't (laughs) need to know about puppies Yeah, you know we would literally had conversations about you might want to think about uh, certain types of milk to make it sleep better. You might want to think about, you know, various other things that we've been talking about. And sure enough, it's almost as if there is like a categorization within that. I, <laughs> right,
1: it's-
0: I, I think that's I think that's amazing. I, I love that sort of thing. Right. Oh, fantastic, keep it coming. But look, um, Ross, back to you, because I, I think yeah. that there is a lot of people out there that aren't so keen on that and don't like yes. the idea of the, the big brother I, yeah. knowing what we're doing. And to an extent, almost manipulating it all you know making use of that to their own profit and gain you know someone's got a few quid out of uh, adam for a puppy training book there which he's quite happy about but other people maybe not so so yeah, yeah. if you could keep if you could keep elaborating on that as you were we, before we jumped in with our own
1: experiences yeah so so that sort of privacy issue is what some most people are saying no i don't want this Um, And even like you say, even if they do understand what it actually means, they're saying, "Okay, no, I don't want because I don't want this privacy uh, Mm. interrupting my life. I don't want the Big Brother style. So that means that then Facebook wouldn't use that data. They introduced this horrifically awful thing about aggregated data um, that is like, it's they're doing aggregated data so anonymous data with pools of people so it's not about a specific person it's about someone who this person behaves a bit like he is likely to be in this group of people who like this website so we can still show the advert to them rather than specifically knowing yes they visited that website so they are going to be the person to show the ad to um it's evolving Facebook didn't really. I spoke to Facebook about this quite a lot, not just Facebook, but also other digital platforms, and nobody really knew what they would end up with. Facebook's reined it back a little bit just recently, so they have other other things you can choose. They they were giving you only allowing you like eight uh, different conversion results that you could track, and um, so the extra events that you could track, um, which is a bit probably a bit too technical for this conversation, but there was, there was all sorts of things they were doing that affected people's results and there was a lot of comment online about how people's results had suffered um when it comes to clinical trials specifically interestingly the the level of interests you could target there wasn't specifically health related in the sense that you can target someone with diabetes but you could target someone who had visited the diabetes foundation website that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, now again this is about Apple users, um, and they are not the majority of people in the world don't use Apple iPhones. It seems like possibly the most people use Apple iPhone than any other type of phone, that's possible. But I think Android is massively high across all the different phones. Uh, but it's a small percentage smaller percentage of most people's traffic, and it would only affect them. And there would be some of them who would have chosen it. So. All this privacy issue, I mean, it, you could get bogged down with the Apple issue, particularly because obviously Google had mentioned they were deprecating cookies as well next year. Then they've put that back another year. So you get bogged down into it, but it's all about privacy. What it seems is likely to happen is things like that are going to come on and go on and on and on. Um, cookies will probably disappear at some point and not be accepted, but they'll be replaced by something that behaves almost identically to a cookie anyway so it's the privacy is a good thing i like i like the idea of it um and it it makes a lot of sense but it's pretty anonymized anyway i I, when i'm targeting people through facebook or google or youtube i don't know who they are Uh, i don't i can't tell who they're demographic uh, just yeah it's just within the anonymized data set they so clearly, know that it's now.
2: very successful. It's, it 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 reaps dividends and and it gets patients recruited into clinical trials quicker.
1: It's it's one of those things that that's why I think Facebook has worked really well uh, because it can do that and people see it and they go on and yeah. yeah. So it's it, yeah in, in this industry it's well worth
2: because well worth it, it, it's one thing identifying people. It's another thing to really focus around that particular demographic, patient population, age group, w- whatever that might be, and then engage them to a point where they're retained, recruited, randomised, enter the clinical trial and are likely to then maintain within that clinical trial, because that's the hardest thing, isn't it? You know, it's, yeah. it's getting a patient randomised, but it's also retaining them to come back visit after visit if they're outpatient or whatever. It's,
1: it's definitely true. Recruitment is the hardest thing, um, and then retaining them on the trial is possibly the second hardest thing you know up to 30 percent of people drop out of trials. so it's uh, which is another reason I think the prime global association is going to be really good because their their communication skill set and being able to tap into how they can translate complex medical information into you know,
2: layperson's language will help us to retain people that's really that that clearly is the key. I mean, with, within all the, all the CROs and, and companies I've worked with and alongside who deal with patient recruitment, those that are most successful seem to have medically qualified or personnel who have that understanding to interpret a protocol and decipher that in layperson speak, as you say, to, yeah. to, to patients, subjects, participants of clinical trials. That's the key, isn't it? As yes. well, identifying them and then the messaging and the communication thereafter. Yeah, and, and, you know,
1: people get hung up on the technology and and the, you know, I mean, I was approached possibly every week over the last nine months by somebody who'd done a new app. Look, this is brilliant about keeping people on trials and, you know, gamification of clinical trials, people wanting to... But, I mean, there's a lot of people who are on clinical trials who don't want to be on the spot. What's
0: gamification?
1: Gamification is, is where, so it's getting people to do something because it's like they're paying, playing Candy Crush or whatever. Um, at its very simple level, it might even be something like Alexa saying, have you taken your tablets today? Um, but it's about turning it into a thing that you might treat as a game.
2: Or, uh, or, or a, a reward. A reward. A reward. Oh, yeah, based upon trying to make that.
1: It, I, I guess
0: that uh, comes into that that engagement side of things, though. I, I guess, yeah. you know, get people on. Look, it's the same as, I, I guess, sort of my business of recruitment, which is staffing. The hardest part is finding the people, but then it comes down to you know my clients or whatever company it is, or you know my own business is keeping the people engaged yep. and communication. So you're saying it's exactly the same with with patient. Um, it sounds very it,
2: transferable, sounds, actually. Sa- it sa- sounds uh,
0: sounds exactly the same.
2: It it really is, isn't it? I think I,
1: I, I think definitely. I mean, there's there's possibly why that the, the word recruitment are in both of the uh, the skills. I suppose, and and I think one of the things about that is the the gamification people focus on technology again, but it doesn't have to be. This could be the, the reward, it could be somebody phoning you. Uh, you know, if you get phoned up every two weeks and it's more labor intensive, but if, it's, if it saves 30% of the people dropping out of the trial, it's worth doing. So, so there's, there's lots of things. So the, the retention side of things is almost as important as the recruitment in terms of uh, the effort that goes into it.
0: Well. So, look, I guess that's how, how you've been kind of building systems for, for people and helping them to, to uh, recruit and engage um, with these patients. Um, and that's the Ross Jackson um, method. And clearly, you're a big fan of the Facebook side of things. Um, look, there must be. Clearly, uh, hundreds of, of patient recruitment uh, companies out there. If it's anything like the, the staffing recruitment side of things, yeah. the competition is it's it's staggering, right? um So, as a, the industry as a whole, and, and for you as an individual, now now with Prime, how has the impact of the virus affected, I guess, you and and what you do, and I guess how have you, I guess, stood out against your competitors, I, I guess, Ross, because you know this is something I, I get asked all the time is you know why why are you any different what do you do that, yeah. are, that why why would we choose you so look if, if you could kind of give us a, an overview sell if if you like as to you yeah know, you know what is it about your method and, and yeah how you go about things that is either different, better, you know, and, and how have you fared during the, the pandemic?
1: Well so look at what happened during the pandemic. I mean I was working on some trials last March uh, when everything went into lockdown and they all stopped a lot of the trials completely stopped and were paused and you know carried on so you know they, they've some of them have come back online not all of them but they were they're all paused so that was a good ex- opportunity for me to write my book it's one of the means that I can stand out with because I can point to this and say look I am a, a acknowledged expert in this area because I've got this this uh, book which mm-hmm. um, Which I think people recognize is there's an effort that goes into it, and you have to have a level of expertise to do it. Outside of that, I've worked on, I think my background is such that I've worked on trials where people have come at it from purely marketing or purely sales, and other people have come at it from a purely medical uh, point of view. And actually, the combination of the two is what's required. So it's you could be you can try and be very salesy, and that put people off, or you can be very medical and academic and again you're not going to attract so many people so this sort of middle ground that i've pursued really where i have and I have the knowledge about lead generation i have the knowledge about what patients are interested in is what really helps me to um sell the service to people and, and get people interested in bringing me on board and now not just me but the uh, the team with the patient engagement team
0: yeah so would you say would you, has it got I guess that there was at the beginning, there was a drop off. I think that um, was unanimous across the board for, for most industries. What about now as, as things are getting kind of back online, there's additional trials with, with um, COVID-19 and everyone trying to secure new vaccines, etc. Et How uh, has it got bigger? Um, has the, the use of Facebook got bigger? Has the use of patient recruitment um specialists like yourself or or business wise has that increased now do you think has it become more
1: competitive it's all all of those things at the same time (laughs) it's um the um the industry obviously you you can't just well you can stop the clinical trial but it still needs to happen Mm. so all these trials are back online so there's a whole six nine months whatever where all these trials queued up now they all need to recruit the patients again uh plus all the trials that were supposed to be happening. They all need to recruit the patients again. uh, The general public, as I said, when I I got into the industry, I wasn't overly familiar with the fact that clinical trials even existed. The whole world now knows that clinical trials exist. So Mm -hmm. this is, it's funny you mentioned the COVID. I, I was approached by three separate companies to promote their COVID trials last year. Um, and I, I effectively told them all, oh, "You don't need me at all because this is this is on the news every day. You don't need me promoting to people, whether it's Facebook or any other method. You don't need me to actually tell people that a trial for COVID exists. They can't move without realizing it does." Mm. Um, when I kept in touch with the companies, but I was right; they didn't need me to use me particularly. But it's it's become a factor now within the world everyone is aware that these things exist there were people queuing around the block to take part in the covid trials uh, and hopefully we can transfer that into trials for every condition
2: i think i think to that point ross i saw at the time something like 50,000 people recruited to covid trials in the uk in the space of a, i don't know less than a week or something like that wasn't it the numbers were extraordinary and mm-hmm. uh, and we we've, we've talked about it with with other guests on on the pod around you know the impact of covid but also the, the the point that you made there around around the language that that this is common parlance now it's out there it's in the public domain it's on the news every day you know up until fairly recently we had we had government ministers standing up at, at various podium podia uh talking about these mm. to 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 lay people so it's become everyday parlance as as you say so it, it's very interesting though the on, on the flip side of that it's a competitive it's a very competitive space though now isn't it because people are now so aware of clinical trials maybe they're picking and choosing what they're doing and maybe whereas people in the past weren't aware that you could be paid for example to do an early phase clinical trial in young healthy volunteers for example now they know about it and yet many people might want to give up their payment or reimbursement for the good of clinical clinical outcome or for for a good cause or whatever is that is that your experience is that what you've seen as well
1: yes indeed and i think the when people are surveyed about it the um reimbursement is low down the list of of the reasons why people take part in trials.
2: Whereas in the past, certainly, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when I worked worked at that time in an early phase clinical trial unit, it was all out-of-work actors and students and medical students. And that was all we had. It was incredible. But it was literally, you know... Time after time after time, the same people coming back, and I would see them up and down the ward all the time, same faces. You know, they yes. couldn't be there all the time, but certainly within a three or six month period, there was this rotation of 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 faces that I saw all the time.
1: Yeah, I, I, I know. Well, to an extent, it's still around in reality. I think phase one trials, it's primarily uh, younger men who you take part yeah. of them. Um,
2: And And there is a diversity conversation to be had around that as well, because I know that's also, you know, very, very front and centre at the moment around not just young, healthy volunteers, male, white, Caucasians, but every diversity and certainly not just males and certainly not, you know, of a particular persuasion. That's a very key aspect of that. And I'd just be curious to know a little bit more about your experiences around that as well.
1: Yeah, I've worked on a couple of trials where we've been trying to um, ensure inclusivity Uh, and this is another debate that's happening within the industry should it be diversity or should it be inclusivity Um, and I think I I think I probably prefer inclusivity myself it makes sense because it's inclusive whereas diversity means everybody's different inclusivity means everybody's the same so you think yeah "Yeah, okay that's yeah that's a bit nicer language I agree I think it is Um, and it's you can do things like that and you can try and do it um, but fundamentally it's about a change within people's perception, which I think the COVID uh, crisis is probably starting to chip away at it. So people think, okay, I mean, I know there's some uh, anti-faxes and whatever else who think it's, um, you know, this is all a, a plot. Uh, and and certainly within some ethnic communities, ethnic minority communities, uh, there is that belief that this is some kind of plot. But when you're looking at diversity and inclusion in general. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's it's going to be more the norm, um, all the, the warp speed uh, trials that the American government uh, were p- paying for. I mean, they've had it in America for years and years. The um, inclusivity has to be part of the trial, but it was it was very front and centre there. So I think that's going to be, um, it's probably going to be adopted industry-wide, I would
2: think. There's, there's two words that I've just written down. One is homogeneity and the other is heterogeneity, which is namely the same or different yeah. and 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 fundamentally clinical trials run on the basis that you know from an objective level you want to compare apples with apples and yet on on the flip side there is there is a, a very different discussion happening around how those uh, protocols are designed and are built around bringing in yeah. a broader population of individuals into clinical trials more generally isn't that
1: there is, and I think it that, that protocol design is one of the things that is probably going to have to change, because I, I think a lot of a lot of what happens is it is yeah it is happening already, but I think a lot of the way people work is right. Here's a protocol. Even take the protocol off the shelf and just use it for a similar trial in the future. Whereas that protocol might have been developed in the 1950s originally, <laughs> and then and then they're still using similar types of things just bolted on. So re re re-evaluating what the the protocol is based on I think is one of the key factors that's from the actual sponsors themselves uh, and then targeting the audience at the rate of the, you know the recruitment level that I, I get involved in yeah we, we need to make sure that this is in, as inclusive as possible because
2: some of these treatments affect different types of people in different ways. They very much do and sorry just to make that point but I used to work In this unit, where we would run these things called um, bridging studies, so you'd have white Caucasians on one side of the ward, and Japanese or Southeast Asian on the other side, be dosing them at the same time and see different reactions at dosing. Absolutely crystallizing. It. I mean, to see it is incredible. Mm. But but genuinely, you know, dosing at the same time, side by side. Now, of course, you can't do that either now since since what what happened. um, all those years ago um in uh in the clinical trial where where everyone was dosed at the same time and, and they all had awful outcomes but as i say that that was my experience on, on bridging studies as well and, and wow. i learned yeah. an awful lot from that experience you know just to literally see them in the same room yeah. being dosed at the same time it sounds
0: like there's a lot of red tape um involved with this Jen. certainly not an area that there's as much on, I guess, my side of things, um, talking just staff and recruitment. Um, Ross, what, what of, of those, it seems like there's quite a few challenges um, for you there. You know, diversity and inclusion is just getting more and more widespread as, as a topic on itself. And you could have a whole other show on, on that alone, I think. Um, but yep. of the the challenges that you've perhaps faced, what's what's been the, the biggest one um, for, for you over the past 18 months? And, and what has that,
1: taught you about yourself? Um, I think it's that the challenge has been, well, there's the obvious challenge of everything coming to a halt and then having to work out what to do, but I managed to get over that. Uh, The the big challenges in terms of what I'm doing in in recruitment is the regulation. Now, it is actually speeding up. Interestingly, uh, some of the you you have to get everything approved by ethics committees uh, and during the Covid times, the ethics committees got faster which is surprising, possibly because they didn't have as many other things to do. So they were able to run through them quicker. But that that's a big challenge, just getting things worked out quickly so you can get uh, recruitment started as soon as possible, getting protocols designed, getting actually, for myself, actually getting the, the legal uh, things in place that you are allowed to work with the firms. There's a very old fashioned thing with a lot of these sponsors where, you know, you need to have lots of money in the bank before they'll deal with you, all those kinds of things. You've got to have all this you know, this financial backing. Um, so it's, as a freelancer, that's never been that easy to do. So I've usually piggybacked alongside someone else. Mm. Now with Prime Global, that's going to be an interesting one because they already have a scope of work arrangements and things like that with a lot of the pharma companies. So that should be easy. What I've learned um, about it, I think, is to get on and do something. That's basically where, so when I put the book together, I was thinking, right, so I need to do something. I might as well take this knowledge I've got and put it out there. It, it's been useful. I mean, I've, I've spoken with site owners who've used it and actually recruited patients from reading what I've said in the book, which is great. So I've used it. It's a double thing. It helped to promote me to people and, and get me, my name out there a bit more, but also it's helped people who need the, the service.
0: It certainly sounds like a, a useful one. I think you know, being able to recruit in any industry is just so valuable. And I know for, for trials, getting patients on is, if you know, anyone who can help with patient recruitment is always just such a valuable person um, to have on side because otherwise th- things aren't going to move.
1: Um, Yes, it's, it's one thing. Because with patient engagement, which has become... <clears throat> Excuse me, patient engagement has become a bit of a buzzword over the last few years. Um, And a lot of the companies still think it's a nice to have rather than a need to have. Having patient centricity at the heart of, of a trial, patient engagement being, you know, asking the patient what they want out of the trial and getting them involved at protocol design level. All those things are very valuable. Patient recruitment, on the other hand, is an essential. Without patient recruitment, there is no pharmaceutical industry. So, it's, um, so they, th- this, it's one of those things where people understand that they need someone good at patient recruitment, but it's still so difficult, which is where, just coming back to your point earlier on about it being so competitive, there's, there is enough uh, business out there. There's enough people running clinical trials. I mean, 300,000 odd clinical trials being run in 2020, something like that. So it's, it's risen exponentially over the last 20 years there's enough clinical trials business out there for lots of patient recruitment firms and you know hopefully the good ones rise to the top and carry on better
0: what do you what do you think is next then for for, for you and for for patient recruitment as we continue to move on because I know that I guess outside of the podcast um you know we've had various chats and and I know that decentralized trials are becoming you know, more talked about, you know, it's all over LinkedIn every single day. Mm -hmm. How is that going to impact, I guess, what you do? How is, you know, is that going to change the market? What's, what are your thoughts on that for, I guess, someone who is, yeah, I guess, guess not an industry expert like myself? Uh, I guess the question probably to both of you, really, what are your thoughts on, on
1: on how that's going to evolve? Decentralization is something that's been around for ages and probably could have happened 10 years ago, but didn't happen that much. Um, COVID has brought it to the fore as it has with so many other things. It's a very good development. It's a great evolution of trials. Two main reasons I think for that is, one from just from my own personal standpoint, it's much easier to recruit people if you can target them wherever they are, rather Mm -hmm. than having to, normally they have to attend a research site, so they have to be within traveling distance. Um, So in this country, perhaps a little bit easier because there's quite a lot of research sites around. Not every country has that. Uh, I've done work in America where the the nearest research site is 500 miles away. So you're not going to get people. You have to target people within 30 to 50 miles of the site. Mm. So decentralization where people can have the trial either at their local doctor or in their own home or or a combination of those things um, is going to be great for recruiting patients. It's also great for the patient. Or dare I say it virtually, Ross? Uh, exactly, virtually like that. So- Through a virtual you, screen. Exactly, if you can, I mean, if, if well, in their own home, through a virtual screen, I guess that's, the, yeah. that's, that's one of the key factors. I think there is no reason that this can't happen for a lot of trials. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some trials where you would need to go into a, a center that had specific equipment. Um, but a lot of trials you wouldn't Um, and then if you can get it done via your local doctor as well again why not but it's it's going to be it's much more patient friendly
2: all of of this feeds into the you know the patient recruitment funnel doesn't it effectively it gives you a broader uh, population that you can select from rather than in the path where you had a much smaller selection and potentially a smaller pot to then filter down into that recruitment funnel that we talk about all the time So, I I think to answer your question as well, James, you know, all it does is it puts it more and more available, it makes clinical trials more and more available to the public. Mm. It retains that interest in drug development. It makes our jobs easier, dare I say it, because it is completely front and center and it probably will never go away now. You know, that visual, you know, the, the visual experience that people have had of seeing and hearing this language all the time has embedded it in this generation and, you know, probably generation 10s, but certainly never more than now, I would say, wouldn't you, Ross?
1: Oh, I definitely agree. I think there's um, the awareness of clinical trials is is so much more. And if, if you know, there will be lots of people think, oh, I'd like to take part in a clinical trial. But if they think, oh, I've got to travel to somewhere 80 miles, or I don't fancy that. But if they think, oh, I don't have to do that. Maybe I can get a smartphone app even or something. Maybe they can do it, a virtual hybrid decentralized trial, then... Yeah, that's going to encourage more people to volunteer for trials.
2: But dare I say, it also, you know, this twenty percent more more kids leaving uni- uh, leaving leaving school and going to universities, applying for dentistry and medicine degrees now this year alone in the UK. So that in itself speaks to that point, doesn't it? That it is absolutely centred people's opinions or people's thoughts and their direction with regards to. You know the STEM subjects and and the opportunities that may then lead thereafter. So it kind of all filters and feeds into that opportunity, doesn't it? Sounds
0: yeah. sounds huge because all I'm hearing is increased awareness, increased access, increased supply. Yes. So yeah. the, the the market it's... is only going one way, and that is through the roof by
1: the sounds of it, gents. It is, and also there's another interesting uh, development going alongside that with clinical trials, and there's um a lot more interest now from the farmers and the biotechs in targeting rare diseases, uh, which there wasn't before, and you know lots of people have rare diseases. Not not lots of people have a single rare disease, but you put them all together, and there's lots of people around. So there's a lot more opportunity to take part in a trial.
2: A lot more possible treatments coming down the track. We 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 speak and have spoken to num to a number of companies uh, and individuals who are working in in and around the the rare disease space. I've also done that myself, Ross and. To, to, to that point, you know, patient advocacy has never been greater. The discussion forums have never been more uh, engaged with with parents and children and individuals looking for compassionate use drugs and off-label marketing um, of, of these medications. So, you know, it all speaks to the same p- point that you've made there, James, which is that people are just aware, so much more aware. Mm. You know, we are so health conscious and we are perhaps making some people are making good choices. Some people are not, but certainly they're aware of the implications of those good or bad choices now. Fantastic.
0: No, well, for me, it all sounds like fantastic news for the industry as a whole. That's the main thing. And as we've each said, you know, there's so many top-class individuals working in the industry. It's just great to hear that there is that increased awareness, and hopefully, going to be more and more in future. Um, but look, Ross, I'm sure we could probably talk about this and the Facebook ads and algorithms forever and a day um, so maybe we, we may well have to get you back on at some point uh, But but before we before we let you go we always like to wrap up the show with a, a quick fire round um, so i'll kick us off with with question number one and um i guess yeah look you've talked us through your your past but um if you were to give yourself one piece of advice um as your younger self what
1: what would that be I think it's something we've actually taken, take in—take opportunities as they come. I think I would have, I, I had various opportunities that I didn't take, uh, which would have led me to a different path than I got to here, but I could have got to where I am now and enjoying this earlier, mm-hmm. um, but I could have, I could have been somewhere else and doing other things earlier as well. So I think I, I did manage to take the opportunity to get into digital marketing, but I sort of went like this a bit where I could have gone there and then there and then here and I could have been so take the opportunities as they present themselves
0: Well, right kind of take exactly what you're saying about your your book take just take action you'll then get to where you're going faster
1: yeah
2: Yeah. like it that sounds like there might be a connection with the philosophy background in you which we haven't touched upon but I've also seen in your in your profile as well yes so so there is a, a thinker and a philosopher there going on as well that's a fair point. Yeah, mm. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll move on to the next the next question around. Um, well, dare I ask? Apart from the book that you've obviously written and is very successful, what what other book would you have or, or recommend to our listeners that uh, that they should be reading right now and maybe on your bedside table? Uh, I've
1: actually I've, I've got two books here. Sorry, so it's it's sort of. It comes into my the combination of what I do in the patient recruitment world. So there's a there's a classic advertising text called Scientific Advertising, written by Claude C. Hopkins uh, ludicrously in 1923. Um, wow. um, but it's anyone reading it today, it's quite a short book. You read it today, it's all about tracking uh, this kind of stuff that everyone would recognize from Google advertising and that sort of digital marketing. So it's it, it's about that sort of data and using the data to target your audience so I've built that into what I do the other one is um, book by Ken Getz called The Gift of Participation which is aimed at patients who are going to participate in trials and it's um, it's a great read for anyone in the recruitment and clinical trials industry for what motivates people what they should expect and I think I, I try and combine the messages from both those books into what I do
2: motivation is everything isn't it you know in in whatever we do um and and clearly identifying that and and trying to trying to drill in and i get get to the crux of the matter with with your patients with your with the the individuals you're trying to engage with is key isn't it it's understanding what what makes them tick really yes yeah exactly yeah thank you
0: and look i i guess you've been an independent um worker for for so many years but you're now I guess the job title is quite grandiose. Uh, oh, yeah. Vice president of was it patient recruitment or was it patient recruitment services? Yeah. Patient recruitment services. There we go. So look, you may well be building a team in a not too distant future. What are the top three qualities that you'll perhaps be you know valuing most when putting together that team, or just in general, uh, Ross?
1: Well, because I I, I, I mean, I've been looking at building the team, and I'm, I'm trying to. You know, we're trying to build the engagement and recruitment service within Prime Global. So,
0: mm.
1: yeah, one thing I know from having worked with teams previously, being personable, being easy to get on with, is a, is really a key factor. It just there's no point working with people you just don't get on with if you can avoid it, especially when you're building your own team. It just makes perfect sense to do that. <laughs> um, I was another thing I was thinking was enthusiasm. So, you c- people can learn how to do something mm-hmm. but having the enthusiasm to do it is always going to be a good thing in the first place so the motivation as i mentioned before motivation enthusiasm that that is going to be another key factor i think it's also the um what i've noticed a few times uh, even for myself a few years ago and hopefully have developed a bit is the awareness to uh, perhaps you need to ask for some clarification on something so if you if you feel like you understand something but you're not entirely sure, it doesn't hurt to just make ask somebody and clarify it. So that that sort of awareness that well I don't know everything, but I I know how to find out by asking someone who does know what I want to know.
0: Definitely, no, I like that, and I I think it's it's the confidence to almost say I don't know everything. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I I regularly have to ask that question as a consultant. I'm I'm always making sure and validating that the approach I'm taking makes sense to the the company or the person that I'm serving at the time. And as you say, I think there is a lot to be gained from, from actually saying, you know, have I understood you yeah. correctly? you I think you said this, did you mean this or did you actually mean this and, and give people solutions, options and and different avenues that they can you know pick and pick and choose from because I think that's key to, to getting a good outcome
1: certainly. You, say, you save so much time in having to go back and unwind if you've got it the wrong way to
2: go start yeah. again. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so so dare I ask when when you're not working, what is it you enjoy doing? What's your favourite thing that you enjoy doing outside of work? And it's a This
1: I, I think it's, it's a bit. I mean, socialising is probably my favourite thing to do outside of work. Now, obviously, not been doing loads of that over the last 18 months um so I've learned I've done other things uh, but I do like writing and uh, not just um uh you know n- non-fiction books I like to write stories um I've written the odd song here and there so I like I like being creative I do those sort of things but yeah I think socializing is probably the most fun
2: thing that I, w- I would like to get to do more of again we'd all evening. like to do a bit more <laughs> of that <Yeah. laughs> I went to two birthday parties this weekend and one was and 18th, the and one was my dads eighty eighth so <laughs> there was seventy years between them and wow. yet the audience was the same and everyone wanted to have a good time
0: <laughs> <laughs> love it so simple and look, Ross to, to wrap us up for the for the show finally what is your number one golden rule for for
1: life and for business i think it's it's a combination of and it perhaps goes back to the philosophical point actually because it's I've been trying to be a bit more stoic introduce a bit more stoicism into my life over the last few years um so it's it sort of don't take things too seriously, but something that sounds like it is really seriously, which is memento mori, which literally translated means remember you will die, um, which is not a morbid thing. It just means yeah. You know this is not a rehearsal for life so make the most of what you're doing um it was actually that wasn't the origin of where it came from this is when uh, emperors were being applauded for successes etc but it's a, like you know be calm down a bit but i think it also can be used for yeah remember that you know do whatever you can at the time you've got available to do it because you may not have the time to do it in the future great thank you great like it great
0: well Ross it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show um I think for a change I think it was yourself who reached out to me and we connected and just started networking on on, on LinkedIn and I was yeah very much intrigued to to understand a bit more about the man who literally wrote the book on on uh, patient recruitment so look thanks very much for coming on the show and I guess sharing your story and talking us through how it all works because it's been a bit of an education for me I'm sure it has for plenty of our audience um but look Once again, Ross, thank you very much for coming on the Huxley Morton podcast.
1: Thank you very much as well. That's been great. I've enjoyed it. Great stuff.